Caitlin and Aaron and Beth with Laverstone. Thank you so much for your talk and for your concern and Aaron for your heart for the college students. I helped to serve one of those meals one time for the college students at the end of term. And Caitlin for your research. It, it seems to me that um, ultimately if we look at the essence of this, it's a, it's a political concern. Um, one concern is not the previous 44-year conservative government in Alberta downloading the costs, the costs of government onto higher education and raising tuition fees, so forcing hiring to raise tuition fees so that students now have to make a, a choice between food and tuition and um, if they're going to go for higher ed. I, I think this is also a federal issue and as well as provincial and that is healthcare is a big concern and Tommy Douglas brought in the idea of healthcare and then the second point was prevention. But ultimately the prevention for healthcare is to give everyone good food and good nourishment from the time they're babies. So when we have one in five children raised in poverty, it means we're going to have one in five adults with some kind of health problems as they grow older. So my question is, how are we going to change the mentality of our society that it's to all of our benefit to take care of our children, those one in five raised in poverty, as well as our students who are the future and part of what will create the violent leverage? I think actually there is a growing awareness of those connections. Um, you know, there have been a number of, of studies that show it just makes economic sense to invest in childhood initiatives because it's just cheaper than jail, it's cheaper than medical intervention later on. Uh, and we've seen this with some of the concerns for housing, um, some of the school initiatives. I think what we need to do is just keep raising those issues, doing education and working with grassroots groups where people are actually coming to understand some of the connections. I mean, part of the problem is we just have some massive disconnects. Um, people not, not knowing where their food comes from, people not understanding, uh, not seeing poverty. I mean, usually when I start quoting the stats for how many students are living with some experience of poverty or of hunger, people are shocked because the perception is that university and college students are largely, you know, 18 to 22, supported by mom and dad, uh, middle class, spending their weekends drinking beer and eating pizza and having a grand old time. And of course, I mean, there are students who, yeah, they're having a great time. And they'll say that. Uh, I have a student group that meets every week. We eat together. And some of the students talk about the fact that, I mean, they've got it. Good. Their parents are supporting them. They may be able to do good paint jobs in the summertime. But they'll be sitting right next to a student who is really excited because I've made, you know, I forget what I've made. I made pulled pork or something. I haven't had meat in a month. 
And those students are sitting side by side. And if you were to look at them, you would think they were coming from the same circumstances. So part of it's just in, in the 60s, Michael Harrington wrote a book, The Other America. And he said, because of things like blue jeans and, and the rest, the access to a fairly universal dress code, he said, you can hide poverty because people don't necessarily look poor the way they might in a third world country uh, in the developing world. So I think part of it's just helping people to be aware that just because students may even have a good car, but it turns out it's leased and they're walking the line of losing it, even if they, they have a cell phone, that, that I mean, I get really frustrated. People, well, if people have cell phones, they're obviously rich. No, if they have cell phones, it's because they probably don't have a landline, and that cell phone is everything. Like if they're, I mean, they need it for class, they need it for their jobs, they need it for everything. So appearances can be very deceiving, and I think as people come to realize that, become more aware of the reality that, that we can start addressing these issues more effectively. So part of it is just getting to know your neighbors and if their students finding out like are they eating properly like I, I hit 50 and I swear something switched inside and now every kid on campus is my kid and I just want to go up and say like are you getting enough sleep and are you eating right <laughs> and I say this to students and they laugh and then they tell me well no okay let's go eat feed them a meal give them a hug because my goodness it's happening all around you and you may not even know it I make sure Caitlin eats at least once a week. <laughs> That's true. She's a really good cook. <laughs> Hello, my name is James Moore. Uh, Caitlin, you used a number I'd like you to clarify, please. $4,200 for a year for buying the healthy food. Was, okay, was that number uh, for 12 months or for the 8 months of the school year? No, that's the in the calculation of living wage for Lethbridge in Vibrant Lethbridge's report, uh, the waterfall report. That's the figure for one year for a single person. Thank you. <coughs> um, so my name is Christina. I'm with the Boys and Girls Club here in Lethbridge, um, and something that we always work on is food security, and we serve a lot of uh, youth, children, and families who struggle with food security constantly. Um, both with acute and chronic hunger. So it's always something that's top of mind and that we're trying to include in our programming. Um, and so I have a question. Um, I'm always looking for resources uh, specifically regarding um, the move towards food security work that includes culturally appropriate nutrition as part of our definition of food security. Um, because I think that not only is it important that we make sure that people have access to nutritionally adequate and affordable food, but that it also meets their cultural needs um, because families that can't cook the food that they know how to cook for their children uh, because they don't have access to the appropriate ingredients, for example, um, or, you know, can't make it all the way down to umami for our specialty foods or ingredients. Um, so that's really making a struggle for food security as well. Um, so I'm wondering if you guys know of any trends um, towards including this in our definition um, or any work that's being done on the topic. I think a great person for you to connect with would be with Arlene. Arlene, you 
She's from Chinook Food Connect, and that's a group that is coordinating and organizing all these groups and looking and identifying with both access as well as meaning like, you know, the sociology aspects of that as well. And she has a lot of really great resources that also contribute to, to your research as well. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank you for your talk. I'm not sure, uh, perhaps it was the first speaker um, that talked about, made the comment about, I'm now Low income. What is you, what is considered low income when you use that word or that? I I have a copy of the vibrant leftbridge report, which includes yeah. the source of that. So I, if you want to check with me after, I I can. There there is a, a sort of a standard that's used for what they consider the low income line. Okay. Okay, and, and I'm going to uh, go back to the, the uh, earlier question that was asked of you of the 4,200 a year per single person uh, food. We've got a couple of single people at our table, and we find that to be quite an appropriate amount. We're talking about 350, appropriately, if you'd like to more, have more, you can eat steak all the time, but I mean $350 a month, about $11 a day. One should be able to eat healthfully. But the problem is, with many young people, they don't know how to cook, they don't know how to plan, they don't know how to budget. So I mean, my heart goes out when I hear statistics of children, one out of five, coming to school hungry. But we were also talking about the fact that we've got a fast-moving society, parents both working, kids come home from school and raise the fridge or what have you, not having to sit down and say, okay, I'm from the old school. But I still say that there's a lot of education that has to take place around food prep, grocery buying, and there are more discount stores in the city than ever relative to food. Grant you, Costco's quantities are far too large for a single person. But, you know, my, my heart bleeds when kids are hungry, but I think they shouldn't have to be hungry. There's got to be some better tools to help these kids get through it. So I guess I don't have a question. I just have a comment. Because uh, I would ask you what you think. How prepared are young people today to make a scratch meal and get the right ingredients and maybe make it serve them for two or three days? Oh, there's my question. Ah. <laughs> Uh, I was actually in a um, conference uh, uh, course thing, teleconference thing yesterday. Uh, the person who was educating us in a program that we're participating in now at the university was talking about increasing numbers of students showing up at college and university without life skills. So I, I mean, it is an issue. The the director of the food bank. Uh, at the college or at the university, used to have a little book of recipes that she would give that were just sort of basic stuff that went with the ingredients she gave them. And she had the student, you know, this young man looked at it and said, "What do you mean drain the beans?" Was a recipe for chili. So she had to explain what she meant by that. And then it said sauteing onion. What did sauteing mean? And then she realized that she, her recipes weren't simple enough because she was having to you know, just explain some pretty basic stuff. Which is why I really commend things like the Interfaith Food Bank for running their community kitchens 
and actually teaching those kinds of skills. And the recipes that they teach are recipes that you can make from inexpensive, accessible food. I mean, the kinds of things you get, the kinds of things, for instance, you get if you went to the food bank. Uh, all of those kinds of additions, I think, are great. There was a, uh, when I was on Chinook Food Connect, there was a woman on the committee who was part of a school program where they were teaching container gardening through some of the North End schools. Because if you're in a rental property, you can't put in a garden because you don't have the right to tear up the, the lawn. So they were teaching container gardening because they, they could have a pot. So they were teaching them how to do that. And then the funding for the program got cut. So they couldn't do it anymore. Those kinds of things frustrate me because I think those are the kinds of programs that long term have the possibility of making huge differences in children's understanding of food and how to prepare it. But part of the reality too is that, you know, I've said to students, dried beans are pretty cheap. But you actually have to have access to a kitchen and to an appropriate pot to make them in. And we have students who don't. They, they either don't have proper cooking facilities where they're living or they don't have pots. Or they say time is of the essence and you can open a can of beans for you know much quicker it might be more expensive but much quicker than and you don't need to have a fancy pot you can just have a microwave and zap it so I mean there's lots of things happening in there that have to do with why students might be experiencing hunger some of it social some of it economic yeah I would also agree with that um, just having the past roommates myself not too long ago, I had two out of four of us actually didn't even know how to cook and they were older than I am at uh, 32 years old. So it was kind of like shocking for me since I've been cooking since the age of 12. And I think that's a part of it too is that we're going to come into this generation difference of where we are teaching younger children now how to cook and prepare food and where the food does come from. And you know, again, from my generation down, where I've even taught college level students who don't have basic life skills now you know, coaching them through on some of these issues. And so I think it is going to be a little missing gap that would be a, a good idea to identify and maybe coordinate and work with them. Uh, my name is Charlie Duca. <clears throat> you mentioned uh, children going to school with uh, uh, hungry. Uh, the implication was that this was financial reasons. <clears throat> I'm wondering if there's another reason. I'm surprised in my area how many people go without breakfast in the morning. And I'm wondering if that's reflected in maybe the children not having it either. Maybe an extra 10 minutes or 15 minutes of sleep or something, I don't know. But <clears throat> work nowadays is not very physical, even on the farm. And people are weight conscious and they seem to be cutting out breakfast because it's the easiest thing to do perhaps, I don't know. So I'm wondering if you have uh, uh, found anything uh, uh, about uh, uh, this uh, going to school because the parents may not be having breakfast. Well, I mean, I never liked breakfast growing up, and my mother would insist, but I mean, we'd fight over it basically every day, for which I'm very sorry, Mom. Um, now, I, I one of my my oldest friend is Italian, and she just laughed because she said, Italians don't eat breakfast. Like, her mother made a pot of hot milk and a pot of coffee, of espresso, 
And when she was little, her breakfast every morning was half a cup of milk with espresso poured in, and she thought that was normal. And she laughs at me because when I stay with her in Italy, like I'll, I'm asking, where's the Cheerios? You know, <laughs> whatever. We have our coffee and then we stop and have another cappuccino and really good pastry somewhere along the way because that's, so sometimes it's just cultural differences about what you would eat in the morning. Uh, some of it is, I mean, I, I know students who say it's really hard when you open your fridge and you've got nothing to give your kids. Um, there's, there's been some interesting, I just saw recently a story about a store that was offering free fruit so that when parents were, you know, were going through the grocery store, they could give their kid a piece of fruit. And the kids were excited about it. I mean, a friend of mine was in a grocery store watching this young mom with her two little ones try to explain that they couldn't afford fruit that week. I mean, the economics is significant of it, but there's also, there can be other issues as well. And I've also got friends, my, my, my dog has had health issues and now is on a special diet. And it has meant that I have to get up 15 minutes earlier in the morning because I have to hand feed him. And I'm whining about this to my friends. And they're howling. They said, well, try having toddlers and add two hours to your morning routine to get them fed, clothed, and out the door. I'm like, okay, I'm obviously not gonna get any pity from this crowd. But it also, for me, as they were describing their morning routines, I thought if I was a single parent, like I could, I don't know that I could cope, like getting them fed, even if I had the food, getting them clothed, <coughs> clean, fed, and out the door, or making lunches for them. Like I have friends who just say school again means having to come up with lunches for them every day. It's hard. I mean, even if there aren't economic issues, it's just hard. Um, for which I, I now feel much worse about complaining about my 10 pound Yorkie and his finicky diet, so. Hi, I'm Heather Gowland. Um, <clears throat> I just want to say thanks for visiting this topic. It's been awesome. And thank you for what you do at the university. I have been a very um, poor student, and I've used these food bank, and I've used baskets, and it's been super helpful, and gone to those um, dinners and stuff, so thank you. Um, my question is, I guess, about food waste. Um, I work in the waste department of the city, so I think a lot about garbage. <laughs> uh, right now, they're estimating that about a third of the um, food that's being produced is being thrown away into the garbage. And some of that's from farm and distribution end, but some of that is also from at the home, right? So when you you know, you're not eating all your food or you're over portioning and uh, a lot of it's going to waste. <clears throat> so I know that there are some websites and some resources out there about how to limit some of the waste um, in your home, like things like just, you know, what, what do you do if you oversalt your soup? Uh, what, how do you store things in your fridge in a way that is conducive to not letting things sit in the back and rot, <laughs> which happens. <laughs> Um, do you think that it would be helpful for the students? Do you think that that would be something that would actually create an impact if they had more knowledge about, I guess this is kind of uh, touching on some of the life skills as well, more knowledge about portioning, um, buying certain things, what types of things go back quickly, and how to, how to better store. 
I absolutely agree. I think it would be one of those things that the knowledge is power. Um, I mean, they're at university to gain knowledge, so it's a little bit more. Um, I do think that is a big part of where things are going wrong. Um, just from my own experience, people who I've lived with, they bought things because they thought they were cool, but had no idea how to like actually utilize them into their cooking, or um, they were bought reduced or on sale, but then they actually didn't use them because they don't understand you know, that food does have an expiry and what those expiries are. Uh, so again, yeah, I do think that that would be part of that knowledge tools, a skill set that would need to be developed. Yeah, and uh, further to that, um, in the spring I was talking with the director of Aramark who was saying uh, there's all sorts of restrictions on what you can do with leftover food in the food industry because, you know, liability issues. Are. But somebody with Aramark in Toronto had figured out a way to take leftover food being produced in Aramark facilities, so places like the university, uh, and making that food available to the poor. And so she uh, was looking at the possibilities of introducing that uh, the UC and U of L into Aramark University. So I haven't heard anything more about it. This was brand new in the spring, like it was just starting to come out. So my anticipation is that sometime in the next year, as a way of reducing waste, but also addressing low-income uh, hunger issues. Okay, so before we uh, continue, we're just about to wrap things up, but I would really like to get the last three questions in, so I'm just going to ask the attendees and our uh, speakers just to keep uh, concise if you can. Thank you. Thank you, thank you. My name is Frank Dodd. I want to ask a basic question again to you, madams. Uh, we've diverted completely now to food preparation. I think it'd be very fruitful for for the knowledge of the percentage of affordability that we should be talking about. Uh, for instance, uh, I've gone through all this. I, I'm one of the few that went through the depression. We know what a hunger is. My mom had to throw me down in the cellar. What made a fuss when I come past the hotel from school? I smelled bacon. I wanted some bacon and eggs. Couldn't afford it, okay? But the question I want to commit to you folks is that. Our political leaders, where it's a three or four days away, they've been raving about the middle class, protecting the middle class. What about the so-called 40% that you're talking about below the, below the middle class? Can you express to us what the hell the middle class is? <laughs> <laughs> It's basically anyone who's above the poverty line and below the 1%. Hi there. My name is Megan Hussey. And uh, I just more have a, a, a comment but have to give an answer to a previous, to a previous uh, question. And I heard about this book on CBC. It was on the program Q. And it is by um, a woman who she did it while she was a grad student. And it's a book called Good and Cheap. It's a free downloadable book that has been downloaded over 900,000 times. And it was targeted to help people who were on food stamps to be able to prepare good food with recipes that were easy to follow and um, 
So yes, so this exists, so look for it. I don't know if it's on the CDC website, but Leanne Brown, good and cheap, and you, anyone can download uh, her, her recipes. Thank you. Hi, it's Jean Fennell. I'd like you to differentiate between the Interfaith Food Bank and the others downtown and the College Food Bank and the University Food Bank. Are they connected? Are they different? And who contributes to the college and university? The, um, the two downtown, Interfaith and Lethbridge, uh, are part of the Canadian Food Bank organization, so they actually do share uh, access to food that's provided. You know, they're trucks that come into town with food. I used to manage the College Food Bank, and we did we did that as a sort of a satellite to the Coaldale Food Bank at the time. Basically, the Coaldale Food Bank took us under their wing and shared with us their Friday. Costco would give them food on Friday, and they would share that with us. So we we are sort of freestanding, and I think that's still the case that the college and the university are, in a sense, out of the loop. Neither, neither can, can provide perishable food, is the big issue. Neither have the space to repackage food. So if you donate uh, you know, a 100-pound sack of flour at, at the Lethbridge or Interfaith, they can repackage it in smaller. We couldn't do that. We, didn't, we don't have the facilities in either campus. So what we do is provide um, a gift card for a grocery store for produce, for milk, those kinds of things. So we operate a little differently, have sort of a standard hamper for a single person or for a family uh, that's pretty basic for, you know, canned, canned and packaged food. But uh, some of the food, like uh, Catelli used to phone up and say, okay, we've got a flat, if you want to come and get, we've got a flat of macaroni for you. And so we have lots of macaroni uh, and other companies will do that. They'll contact us and let us know. And then, of course, the Student Association, Student Union do food drives on both. And they'll go out to the community and do food drives as well. So, and there'll be events. Come and get a buck off your ticket if you bring a can of food, those kinds of things. So. Hi, I'm already more with Connect. I'm also a registered dietitian. And uh, I just wanted to say that food security is a big, broad issue. It's even, as the title said, a local and a global issue. And I, food literacy, what we were talking about earlier about getting those skills, those cooking skills, for example. Yes, we know if we can cook from scratch, we may be able to save some money. However, that's just a part of the big umbrella of food security. And often we're looking at food insecurity, which are the people who already have the problem, who don't have enough money or maybe skill set as part of it to put healthy, nourishing, culturally appropriate food on the table. Um, I like to look at food security so that we prevent people from falling into food insecure situations, but we know there's a lot of food insecure situations happening in Canada today and in our province, and it's only growing. So I want to come back to Erin, uh, some of the stats she quoted at the beginning of the presentation. That in Lethbridge here, we have 12% um, of the population at low income. The question was, what is low income? And I don't have that number at hand, but we do have the percentage. 
So 12% of people, that's about 10,000 people living here, our neighbors, our friends, etc. And we may not even know that their food is secure. And it's certainly not necessary. I mean, it might help if they have the cooking skills or they can understand the food label. All these things help. But if you don't have enough money to put food in the table and you have other pressing issues, which are called the determinants of health, so if you have to pay for housing or rent, for example, or transportation to get to the food store, and we know that the cost of transportation in Lethbridge, public transportation is quite costly, and that's why it's being looked at by Vibrant Lethbridge. So some of these things play the factors with how much food we can put in on the table. And if I come back again to Erin's statistics, thank you for those statistics, Erin. Um, in we're the hot, and and if I get them wrong, if if I didn't capture them correctly, please correct me. We're in the second highest rate of poverty in the province, and within that, we have one in five children hungry today. So I think it's an issue which really goes beyond beyond cooking skills. I think it's something that we need to come together and we need to find creative solutions and move forward. So if anyone wants to uh, connect with me or join Food, uh, Food Connect and work on some of these, that would be most welcome. So thank you. Thank you, Arlene. Um, so I think with that, we're gonna we're gonna call it a wrap. Um, and I, you know, Arlene, she uh, I was gonna kind of do a little summary, and she got it all for me. So um, yeah, I think uh, food security is a huge topic, uh, and I think it all does you know strike home when you hear the numbers. So I hope we all have learned something today, and we'll um, you know maybe start asking our neighbors and asking around uh, as to you know what can what can we do to help our our neighbors and our friends make sure that they're eating well. Um, and start thinking outside the box. Um, and I know there is a lot in the city. Um, I, I just learned recently of the Soup Kitchen is a fantastic organization. They won't refuse anybody. If you come, you're welcome to have a meal. And so I think a lot of it is just reducing the stigma of using these, like um, Karen and Caitlin said, you know, there's stigma with going to the food bank or going to the soup kitchen. And so we need to, you know, ensure that it is utilized because there are people who are not utilizing because of that stigma. See, with that, I want to thank you all because this was a really easy uh, topic to moderate. So thank you. You were all lovely. <laughs>